0: Luke 6, verse 27. We are studying all the way through the book of Luke, and we find ourselves in Luke, verse six twenty seven, or chapter 6, verse 27. And I have entitled this message this morning, The Cost of Love. Let's read as Luke writes the words of Jesus. This is what Jesus says. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. To him who strikes you on the one cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who asks of you. And from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them back. And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father also is merciful. Let's pray. <clears throat> Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord, for all that you've given us and all that you've done. And you are good, and you are loving, and you are kind. And Lord, I pray that we would. Understand who you are, then live the life that you have called us to live by the power of your Holy Spirit, being your representatives and your ambassadors to this world. We thank you for the blessing that it is to be in the body of Christ, Lord, and we thank you for the Word of God that you've given us. We thank you that we have the opportunity to come and open your Scriptures and read them and teach them and preach them, Lord. And Lord, as always, we ask that your Word would not return void, but that it would have its full effect upon us, Lord, to make us and to mold us into the image of Christ. Thank you, Jesus. May you be glorified this morning by all that you see and hear. We give this day to you in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. July 7th, 1967, the Beatles released their All You Need Is Love album with that title song of the same name, And it's popular refrain, all you need is love, love is all you need. Many of you remember that album or that song playing on the radio stations out there. In our culture, the culture of our world, especially Western culture, we love to celebrate love. Pop music sings about love. Romance novels sell love. Hollywood cashes in on this theme of romantic love again and again and makes millions off of it. When I was a kid, there was a TV sitcom on called Love American Style, and that would come on and there would be these these fireworks that would go off when that show opened up on TV, and that's when my parents would say, we can't watch that, go turn the channel. And for you that are younger, you literally got up and turned the channel back then. That was the remote in the home. Your dad just looked at you and said, kid, go turn the channel. That's why people had lots of kids, so you didn't need to buy a remote. As Christians, we talk a lot about love. Love your neighbor. We tell people that Jesus loves them and that God is love. Our Western culture, both secular and religious, is awash in love, and that theme is everywhere. And we might get a picture in our mind that birds are singing in the trees and people are holding hands and we're all skipping on the sidewalk because there's so much love in our world. Well, we know that's not quite the case If you've lived life for one day on this planet, you know that there is a shortage of love and that people are not loving one another. There is a serious lack of love in this world. Biblical love is very different from the world's definition of love. And often that message gets lost on people when we as Christians talk about love and God's love. You see, Jesus here, when he's commanding us to love, he is commanding us to biblical love. That is supernatural love. A love that comes from God and from God alone. Often when we try, as Christians, to share the love of Christ with this world, what they hear is the world's definition of love and not the biblical definition of love. You see, the world's definition of love deals with feelings and sentimentality. And often, increasingly today, it even deals with eroticism. It's an all-accepting, all-endorsing, kind of a mushy feeling of love. It is not based on truth. It is based on our emotions and making us feel good. When we say Jesus loves you, the world often hears things like, Jesus wants to make me feel good. Jesus wants to endorse me and who I am. Jesus would never ask me to change. Jesus will just help me to do whatever I want to do, appealing to my emotions. But biblical love is different. Biblical love is a sacrificial love that is always doing what is best for the other person. The biblical love is a tough love. It doesn't always make us feel good. You see, God's love is a very costly love and it plays out in tangible action, not sentimentality. God's love is an active love. It is expressed as a verb, as in action, as people can observe our love at work. And that's why the Bible points to the cross as the greatest example of love in this world. That Jesus paid it all so that you and I might live. He knew and recognized the penalty that was upon us. He saw that and he said, I will go in their place. I will pay for them so that they can live and escape the wrath of God. That's the greatest love in the world. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, and to lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus there was speaking of the cross. I am going to go to the cross and die for you. And I'm going to do it because I love you so that you can live. Paul told the Romans in Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because we were so good. He didn't die for us because we were so cute and pretty and it looked like we deserved it. He died for us because he loved us, even when we were sinners. That's love. Now, in English, we have one word for love. And we use that word for all sorts of things and it cheapens it, doesn't it? I say, I love my wife, I love my job, I love airplanes, I love a Philly cheesesteak sandwich. And we just talk about love for all of these different things, and it kind of brings the word down, and it loses its special meaning of what it really is. The Greeks were far more precise, and they had four words for love. Storge, phileo, eros, and agape. Now, you don't need to remember all those, but it's important for us as Christians to recognize that when we see love in the Bible what is behind it, what kind of love is the Bible talking about, knowing that the New Testament, of course, was written in Greek. Storge love is that type of love that we have in the family, love for one another in our family, those of us who are related to us. Phileo is that love between friends, that very close love. It's quite often called a brotherly love, not brothers in a family, but friends that are so close, they love each other so much, it's like they are brothers. Eros is that romantic love between a man and a woman. And that is almost exclusively the type of love that our culture concentrates on. But agape, that final love, is different. Agape love is an unconditional love. It is not a self-centered love. And it is the word that the Bible uses for love... When it talks about how much God loves us, that God does love us, that we should love the Lord with all of our hearts, minds, and souls, and that we should love one another. The Bible is using that word agape love, an unconditional, sacrificial type of love. And that's the kind of love that we see here that Jesus is talking about. It is a love that will cost us, it is a love where we will have to sacrifice. It is a love that is impossible in our own effort. It is absolutely unconditional love, and it is supernatural because it is the love of God. When we read this section of Scripture, and we see that Jesus is commanding us to love in these very difficult, almost impossible situations, we recognize that the Christian life cannot be lived in our own and by our own power. It's got to be the power of God, the power of His Holy Spirit living inside of us. This is a love beyond anything that we are capable of in our own flesh. And I have to confess, when I read this, this is very humbling to me as your pastor to recognize that this section of Scripture and these commands to love, they search me, they convict me, they rebuke me, and they show me that I still have a distance to go. I am still being called by the Lord. I'm still being sanctified by the Lord. I'm still growing in the Lord Jesus Christ on a daily basis and jesus begins here in verse 27 and he's addressing those who hear his voice he starts off by saying but i say to you who hear isn't that interesting and jesus was mentioned that many times in the new testament those who have an ear to hear if you have an ear hear my voice hear my word to those who hear remember that when he was on trial before Pontius Pilate, just before he was crucified, he said, all of those who are of the truth hear my voice. He's talking here to his disciples, and his disciples are those, the people of the truth, and the people of the truth will hear the voice of Christ. To all of those who hear, and he begins by saying, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Now, that sounds so great on paper, doesn't it? Love your enemies. Oh, yes. The world would be a much nicer place if we all loved our enemies. It sounds so noble, so philanthropic. It sounds so stately. Maybe John Lennon was right. All you need is love. Love. Love is all you need. Okay, good. You didn't get up and run. I was afraid of that. But if we're honest, when we read this, this cuts our heart to the core. Because all of us have enemies. We all have people that don't like us. We all have people that we don't like. And we fail to love them as Jesus commands us here. It is a very humbling passage. All of us have people who have hurt us. And betrayed us. And turned on us. And stabbed us in the back. And done things that were deeply injurious. That's just life in this world. Jesus does not deny that we have enemies when we come to him. He doesn't say, oh, once you come to Christ and once you become one of my followers, all of your enemies will go away and everyone in the world will be your friend. That's not what Jesus says at all. He confesses and admits, you're going to have enemies in this world. But what's our response to them? What is our response to our enemies? What is expected of us from heaven's vantage point? Jesus commands us to love them. We are to love them. We are to actively and sacrificially with agape love, love our enemies. And that's what sets Christianity apart, doesn't it? We are commanded to even love the worst, the people that would hurt us and harm us, the people that hate us. We as Christians individually are commanded to love them, even our worst enemies. How are we to love them? The Bible says we are to do good to them. It doesn't say do no harm to them. Now, that would be different, wouldn't it? The Bible said, okay, if you have enemies out there, do nothing bad to them. All of us in our flesh and in this world, we could all live with that command. That'd be an easy one. All right, I don't like them. They're my enemy. Oh, fine, I will just leave them alone. I won't mess with them. I'll let them go their way and I'll go my way and we'll all be fine. We'll all be happy. That's not what Jesus commands us to do. He says, use your resources, Christian." Use your time, your energy, and your money to bless your enemies, to make life better for them. That's staggering, isn't it? I know that searches you because it searches me as well. We can look at that and we can think, no, no, Lord. Obviously, this is a misprint. You don't understand what that person did to me. They hurt me. It was awful. They turned on me. They betrayed me. That person deserves to be punished, Lord. That person deserves the punishment, the fire and brimstone of hell for all of eternity. And you're probably right. That person does deserve it. But so do we, don't we? So do we. When we understand God's perfect system of justice, we too deserve God's punishment. And God is saying, be merciful because I am merciful. And now you are to show that and express that mercy to this world, even to your worst enemies, because it demonstrates my love to this world. And we can never forget that we as Christians are called to be the disciples of Christ, but not just disciples. The word disciple means follower. It means student. And we are certainly called to that. But we are also to be his ambassadors and his representatives to this world. So that when the world looks at us, they see Jesus. That's the idea here. And just in case you missed it, Jesus says, bless those who curse you, pray for those who spitefully use you. The first time you read this, and it says, love your enemies and do good to them, you can think, oh, well, maybe that was, maybe that was a, an error there. Maybe it's lost in the Greek and the translation and so forth. But Jesus says, no, Bless those who curse you and pray for those who spitefully use you. Ouch. It hurts. Then you realize that that's exactly how Jesus lived. When they were nailing him to the cross and they were piercing his hands and they were piercing his feet, what did Jesus do? He prayed for them. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, they don't recognize the level of crime that they are committing here. Do not hold it against them, Lord. Jesus could have cursed them. He could have reviled them. He could have said, you don't know what you're doing. You're killing the son of God. I curse all of you for this. He prayed for them. You see, this is love that is defined from a heavenly vantage point. It is love that emanates from another kingdom and obviously does not come from this world. Our natural reaction in this world is to do what? It is to strike back. It is to get even with people. It is to make our enemies pay for their transgressions against us. I'll show you. You mess with me, I'm really going to mess with you. And that's how the kingdom of this world operates. You slap me, I'll shoot you. You shoot me, I'll go and blow up your family. You blow up my family, I will nuke your country. Don't mess with me. There is this natural tendency to escalate the revenge and not only to get back, but to elevate the response and to make our enemies regret the day that they ever messed with us, the day they ever crossed us. That's how this world works. We've all felt that and we've all experienced that in this world. And what's worse, we've all done that. We've all been perpetrators at one time or another trying to get revenge on our enemies. So then how can Jesus tell us to bless our enemies? To pray for those who spitefully use us. To do good to them when it is so foreign to this world and so foreign to our thinking and our natural reactions. How can Jesus command to do this? He is speaking from the vantage point of heaven. And when we look at it from the vantage point of heaven, it all makes sense. You see, God's love comes from God's perspective and God's character. And as Christians, we are to have God's character and God's perspective when we look at this world. That's what he has called us to. And we know that this world is temporary. And we know that this world is passing away. And even if this world does go on for thousands of more years, I don't think it will, but even if it did, it's very temporary for us, isn't it? Our lives are very short here. But, jesus is saying the reward of god is eternal your life is temporal but heaven is eternal and all of god's reward for you is kind of like a father telling his son that's having trouble in school maybe he's being bullied by a bunch of boys or or a gang there at school and the father says to his son have nothing to do with them son if they come and try to make a difficult life for you they begin to intimidate you and to provoke you into a fight walk away The son looks at that, dad, if I do that, I'll look like I'm weak. People will make fun of me. They won't think very highly of me. But the dad knows I've got a prospective son that you don't have. And I have resources that you don't have. And I can make this right. But your job right now, this week in school, is to walk away from it. I will take care of you. Because if you get involved with the gang, if you get provoked into a fight, it will only drag you downhill and your life will spiral out of control. Let me take care of it, son. And that's exactly the perspective of our heavenly father. He's basically saying to us as Christians, you're going to have enemies in this world. You're going to have great difficulty in this world, but let me take care of it. I am in control. I am sovereign and nothing escapes my notice. Your life is very short. Three score and 10 plus a little minus a little but heaven is for all of eternity, and I am going to reward you. Jesus is saying, trust me on this. My Father knows how to reward you in a way that your greatest persecution from your greatest enemy in this world will look petty when you compare it to all that the Father is going to pour upon you for all of eternity. So the job that I've assigned to you as a Christian The role in life, when it comes to your enemies, is to love them, to do good to them, to bless them, and to pray for them. That's what I've given you. You're going to be hated in this world, but do not hate them in return. I want you to love them, even as my father loves this world, as incredible as that command is. That's our calling. Now we need to keep this in perspective and see the big picture. And we can never forget as Christians that there is justice in the end. The Lord is going to reward and the Lord is going to punish. Do we understand that? The Lord is going to reward righteousness, righteousness by our faith in Jesus Christ. But the Lord is also going to punish all of the evil and wickedness of this world, evil and wickedness that exists in rebellion to the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing escapes his notice. Nobody's getting away with anything like the teacher who sends her kids out to recess and then watches everything that happens out there on the playground. Now, initially, when those kids go out there for that 15 minutes, it looks like chaos and anarchy at rain. And perhaps it does on the playground. And 15 minutes can seem like a long time to a child, but that teacher is watching it all, taking notes, and eventually that bell is going to ring. And when that bell rings, all of those kids are going to come into that class all of those kids are going to sit down and then rewards and punishments will be meted out according to what the teacher observed out there on the playground. That's a bit like life, isn't it? It can look like chaos and anarchy reign in this world and that there is no justice and that people get away with sin endlessly. And we can think, where is God in all of this? The bell's going to ring eventually. And punishment and reward will be meted out. And God's wrath will be fierce and awesome and swift. And it will be done in perfect justice by a perfect judge. We can leave the punishment of sinners into the hands of God. We don't need to attempt that feat. It doesn't belong to us. God will take care of it. And that's what Paul told the Romans in Romans 12, 19. He said this, beloved, speaking to Christians, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Do we understand what Paul is saying here? Don't seek revenge on your enemies in this world. He's saying, Step back and give room to the Lord. Vengeance belongs to Him. Give room for His wrath and His judgment and His justice. It's not in your hands. That's the perspective of Jesus here in all the commands that he's giving us. And that's why he can command us to to this supernatural type of love. To do good, to bless, and to pray for our enemies, and to love them in a way that seems so absolutely incredible. That is our calling. That is our command. And we leave the justice of our enemies to God. And sometimes we're all tempted to think that, Lord, if I don't get them back, if I don't take up my revenge here on earth, they're going to get away with it and justice will not be served. The Lord says, no, no, that's my department. I want you to love them. And then Jesus says, if someone strikes you on the cheek, offer them the other cheek. And this is where we get our line, turn the other cheek in Christianity. Now, We need to be careful to understand what the Bible is saying here and what the Bible is not saying. This can be a little bit confusing. And if you take this in the wrong direction, it can be very self-destructing. You can put yourself in some very bad situations. The Bible is not teaching here that we need to continually put ourselves in harm's way, to continue to place ourselves in abusive or harmful situations without ever trying to escape. That's not what the Bible is saying. You can't look at this and think, well, okay, this man is assaulting me right now, but I got to turn the other cheek, so I can't leave the assault. I'll just allow him to continue to assault me and take my money and to take my health and beat me into the ground. Not at all. Doesn't mean that we need to surrender our natural God-given defense mechanisms. I mean, when somebody swings at you, duck. Go ahead. That's my advice, all right? Just duck. Put your hands up. If you don't, If you don't duck or put your hands up to guard your head in this world, you're not going to live long. God has given us this ability to defend ourselves. And it's right. and It's good. Don't look at this verse and think, well, I'm going to love my enemy and turn the other cheek so I will never resist evil when it comes my way. God has given us that desire to run away from difficult situations or scary situations or dangerous situations. Run, defend yourself, get out of there. But what's Jesus talking about? Jesus is talking about being insulted. You know, in that day, and even today, but you'll get arrested if you do it today, but in that day, to insult someone, you would slap them. It was to publicly humiliate them or to mock them. It was a very strong insult in front of everyone. And Jesus is saying, when you suffer that kind of painful and egregious insult, even in public, you are not to get back at them You are to be prepared for another insult. And you are to be prepared with a right heart before the Lord. Don't retaliate. Don't get back at someone. Remember that when Jesus was standing before the high priest, he was on trial. Caiaphas, the night before his execution. Caiaphas asked asked him a question. Jesus answered. And the guard standing next to Jesus didn't like the way that he addressed the high priest. And the Bible says that he struck Jesus. Probably with an open hand as a smack across the face, as an insult to Jesus. Jesus did not turn to the guard and say, okay, now hit me again. Nor did Jesus revile him though. Jesus did not try to get even, try to get revenge. He just calmly told the guard, why did you strike me? What did I say that was unjust? And he pointed out the injustice of the fact that the man had hit him. And the point here is that we as Christians don't retaliate somebody insults us, somebody does something to us to make us look bad or to harm us, we don't go after them and try to make it worse for them. That's our natural inclination. Jesus says, no, don't retaliate. It's a good thing to teach your kids too for your parents. You'll see a lot of retaliation in the home if you haven't noticed. Kids, don't retaliate. Don't get your sister or your brother back. That's not how we live the Christian life. Jesus is describing here a love that spawns from the grace of God. This is God's love. This is a heavenly love. This is a love beyond and outside of this world. And to understand it, we really need to look at the big picture of what's going on and where we are. Let's evaluate the timeline of where we are living today. Where are we? This is what we call the church age or the age of grace. Does God judge sin? I mean, is that a a valid statement? God judges sin? Absolutely it is. God judges sin even in this age of grace. But we have to admit, when we look around at the world, there are a lot of sinners getting away with a lot of sin. From Wall Street to Main Street to my street to your street. There are a lot of people out there sinning, and it doesn't look like any justice is coming their way. Why is that? Why does God allow sinners to go on sinning in this world? I mean, he certainly has the ability to strike people dead, and he's done it in the scriptures. We've seen it. Remember Nadab and Abihu? They were the sons of Aaron. Aaron was the high priest, Moses his brother. And on one occasion, Nadab and Abihu went to offer fire before the Lord. The priest would come and burn the sacrifice, and they would bring incense before the Lord, burning incense. Nadab and Abihu presented strange fire or profane fire before the Lord. Now we don't know really what that means except that they did it in a wrong way with a wrong motive and a wrong attitude before the Lord. And when they presented this strange fire, this profane fire before the Lord, God struck them dead on the spot. You don't come before me like that. Bam, they're dead. And it was so fierce and so strict That he told Aaron through Moses, don't even mourn for them. Don't even shed a tear for them. That was my right judgment upon them. God did it in the New Testament as well. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? They had sold land and they had taken the money and they had lied about how much money it was, and they had given it and said that this was the whole amount. Now they didn't have to give any of the money, it was clearly theirs. They could have given all of the money, 50%, 10%, or none of it. It was strictly their money. The problem was they lied. And they said this was all of the money. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And God struck Ananias and Sapphira dead. So God can, has the right, the ability to strike sinners dead the moment they sin, but so often he doesn't. And obviously, by observation, he hardly ever does that because there are a lot of sinners getting away with a lot of sin, it would appear, in this life. So why? Why does God allow sinners to continue to sin? Why does he allow evil people to continue to commit evil in this world? That's one of the criticisms of God, isn't it? We've all heard it. I can't believe in a God that allows so much evil in this world. God allows evil. He allows sinners to continue to sin because he is reaching out to them by his grace, by his goodness. He is still calling to them. And that is how God is relating to this world, by his grace. And he is calling people into his kingdom by his goodness and by his love. That is his primary means of relating to this world right now in this age of grace. That's why Paul says in Romans 2:4. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? It is the goodness of God that brings us to repentance, to repent of our sins, and to receive his forgiveness. You see, God's goodness, God's amazing grace, is what he is using to call us into a relationship with him, to know him, to love him, to experience his forgiveness. The fact that people have trampled on that grace and they continue to sin and live far from the Lord is not the Lord's fault. And so many people want to blame God, don't they? And I hear this all the time. I can't believe in a God that allows so much sin in this world. Okay? And you talk to them about the God of the Old Testament, the judge sin. And judge sin very awesomely, fire and brimstone coming down from heaven, flattening Sodom and Gomorrah. And then they look at that and they say, well, I can't believe in a God that is so judgmental and vengeful. You think, which is it? Which is it? When God judges sin, you don't like him because he's too angry, you say. When God allows sin because he calls out to people by his grace, I don't like that God either. Just an excuse. They don't want to believe in any kind of God because they want to worship themselves. God is reaching out to this world right now by his grace. And when we understand that, when we understand The calling of God, the goodness of God, and the grace of God, and that we are His ambassadors and representatives to this world, that He has called us to demonstrate His goodness and His grace to this world. This kind of command that Jesus gives us all makes sense. These are very difficult commands here. This kind of love is very hard, it is a love that is filled with self denial. It is a love of self-restraint. It is a love that is supernatural and a supernatural goodness that we do not have on our own. We must rely upon the Lord for this kind of love. It's very difficult. But Jesus commands us to this. And we understand it when we have an eternal perspective that we are representing Jesus in this world and that this life is short and his reward is eternal. Eternal. And he's going to punish evil. We can leave it in his hands. And with that knowledge and understanding, everything else then falls into place. We understand why God commands us to love this way, because we are representing him to this world. And then Jesus says, if somebody takes your cloak, and your cloak was your garment to keep you warm, be ready to give them your shirt as well. This was a big deal in this day. A lot of Americans have 30 changes of clothing. We have five or six coats in the closet. It's not a big deal. In that day, most people had one set of clothing and your cloak is what kept you warm. It was your outer garment. Jesus says, if somebody takes it, be ready to give them your shirt as well. What's he saying there? Is that an unjust situation? Of course it is. Very unjust. Jesus is saying, God is going to take care of you. But you, in doing that, and with that right attitude, you will have represented the goodness and the generosity of God to this world. When people want to borrow from you, Jesus said, let them borrow. Be known for your generosity. Don't demand anything in return because God is giving and God doesn't demand anything in return. And once again, we need to understand what the Bible is saying here and what the Bible is not saying. If you're in a place of authority, this does not mean that you can't hold people accountable and responsible for their actions and what they do with the stuff that they've borrowed. If you're a mom and dad, hold your children extremely responsible for the things that they borrow and force them to return it in better condition than when they borrowed it. So yes, we can do that with our kids. We can do that if we have a place of responsibility in society. This doesn't mean that you need to destroy someone In one of their bad habits, Jesus is not saying, well, you know, a drug addict, an alcoholic came up to me and asked for money and they're homeless. So I, I gave them money so that they could go spend on their drugs and and more alcohol and destroy themselves even further. That's not what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is not saying that for everyone that's lazy and greedy and indolent, and they keep stealing from you that you've got to just open things up and say, yeah, keep stealing. I'm not going to prevent it. No, you'll destroy that life. Not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is that we are to look like the Lord in all that we do and how we relate to this world. God is generous, even to the people who do not deserve his generosity, because none of us deserve his generosity. And Jesus is saying, represent and look like your father in heaven. Be generous to this world. Be known for your kind mercy and generosity, even to those who don't deserve it in your life. And then Jesus gives us a qualification that's beautiful and it's perfect. And he puts this this definition, this defining principle in front of us so that we can all understand it. And he says there in verse 31, And just as you want men to do to you, you also do to them likewise. Just as you want someone to do to you, do that also to others. That's what I'm commanding you toward. That is the standard by which all behavior is judged. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do to someone else what you would want done to you. It's also a great tool, once again, parents, to teach your children how to behave. Would you want your brother or sister to do that to you? Then don't do the negative things and do do the positive things that you would want them to do to you. It's a wonderful tool. A wonderful tool to instruct society. It's a wonderful tool to instruct the church on how we are to live with one another. What would you want done for you? Do that same thing for others. Now notice that Jesus does not put this in the negative, as most world religions do. They teach, don't do to someone else what you wouldn't want done to you. That allows us to draw a line and say, okay, I wouldn't want them to bother me, so I won't bother them, and I'll just let them go their way, and I'll go my way. That's not what Jesus says. Because what would you want done? He puts it in the positive. He puts it in the proactive. You are to serve your neighbor even in a way that you too would want to be served. If you were in need, wouldn't you want someone to bring you a meal? Well, then do that. If you were hurting, would you need encouragement and want encouragement? Well, then do that for others. And that's what Jesus is saying here. And it comes back to that biblical definition of love, that sacrificial definition of love jesus is commanding us to love with that agape unconditional love and it all points to jesus why does jesus command us to love this way because it's an introduction of the gospel for god so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son why did the father send the son to come and die for us what was his motivation for god so loved the world Because God loves us, he gave his son. And we are to show that same kind of love. We are called to display the love of God to this world, a love that will make people receptive to the gospel. So when they see that love coming through you and me, we set them up, so to speak, to understand the love of God and the giving of Jesus. And then Jesus says in verse 32, But if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. That's primarily how the world loves, isn't it? The world loves in this type of reciprocal love. If I do something good for you, then you need to do something good for me. If I love you, you better love me. I want something back from you. I'm giving to you. I'm sacrificing for you so that you'll do the same thing back to me. It needs to be this two-way street. Otherwise, I'm not going to love you. But that's self-serving love. And Jesus says, don't love like that. Because God doesn't love like that. God does not give his love so that he can get something back. And we are to express God's love to this world. You see, God loved us even when we were sinners. God loved us even when we were living in rebellion to him. God loved us even when we were far from him. That's when he gave his son for us so that we might live. That's the kind of love that God has. And we see an example of this in the Old Testament. Remember the prophet Jonah, God sent the prophet Jonah to the Assyrian city of Nineveh to tell them of God's love, that they're in sin. They need to repent and receive the forgiveness of God. Remember the story. Those of you that have been in church, you remember the story of Jonah from the time you were a kid. Jonah was a prophet and the Lord said, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, no way, not going to Nineveh. I hate those people. I hate that city and I'm not going there. Actually said no to God. Nineveh to the northeast of Israel. Jonah got, went to Joppa and got on a boat headed west. He was going in the other direction. And as he was on the boat out on the Mediterranean, a huge storm came up. A storm so bad that the sailors began to toss their tackle and their, their goods and all the cargo overboard. That's bad when a storm makes you do that. Finally, Jonah told the boys Hey, listen, guys, the storm is because of me. I serve the God who controls everything, including the weather. This is from him. You got to throw me overboard. They said, no, 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 we don't want to do that. And sure enough, time went on. The storm intensified. Okay, we're throwing you overboard. And I think that Jonah was actually wanting to commit suicide. He was saying, I would rather die, throw me in the deep, and let me drown so that I don't have to go to Nineveh. I would rather die than to see that city repent. That's how intense his hatred was. So they heave ho, throw him over the side, and a great fish swallows Jonah. Was it a whale? Was it a fish? I don't know. The Bible says fish. And he's in that fish, in the belly of that fish for three days. Now the most incredible part of the story is that Jonah is in that whale or fish for three days before he repents. Can you imagine that? three days and i'm not doing it i just i don't i know it's uncomfortable in here and i can barely breathe but i'm not repenting i'm not going to nineveh finally on the third day he breaks okay lord i'll go to nineveh and then the fish spits him out poof onto the beach now when i was a kid and i heard that story i thought that he spat him up on the beach of nineveh and then he walked into the city nineveh's hundreds thousands of mile inland no no he still had to walk a great distance you can imagine him with his bad attitude. You know, I just to three days in a fish, and now I'm walking all the way to Nineveh. I'm going to tell those people. And so he gets to Nineveh, and he just goes in there and says, Repent. Repent, because the judgment of God is coming. You better repent. And they hear it, and they listen, and it works, and the city repents, and they turn from their sin. Well, that even makes Jonah more angry. I can't believe it. They actually repented. You can't believe that God saved this city. Jonah wanted to see Nineveh go up in a mushroom cloud. First nuclear explosion, Lord, right here. Judge these people. The Assyrians were a cruel and barbaric people. They were enemies to Israel. Jonah had every right to hate them, actually. The cruelty of the Assyrians, the city of Nineveh, was legendary. Legendary cruelty in war, legendary cruelty to their prisoners of war. They were the people known for putting hooks in their prisoners of war's nose to lead them away, lead them over great distances. And so you could not turn back, you could not stumble, you could not fall because you had a hook in your nose. They were the people known for skinning, flaying their enemies alive so that the, the, the city that they were fighting against could hear the screams and they would put the skins of their enemies up on the wall. These were a very cruel and horrible people. Jonah had every right to hate them. And they deserve the judgment of God. And he wanted to see God destroy them. And when God forgave them, it made him angry. But then the Lord spoke to Jonah. In Jonah 4.11, the Lord said this to Jonah. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? What a tender picture of our God. To Jonah. You wanted me to destroy this city. Do you not realize that there are a hundred and twenty thousand little ones that don't know the difference between their right and their left hand? I love them, Jonah. I want to see them saved. I want them to repent so that I can restore them and bring them into a relationship with me. That's God's heart. That's God's love, even for this very sinful people. That's how much God loves this world. This is a wicked world. There's a lot of sin and awful people in this world. You know, you read the same newspapers that I do. But God wants to forgive this world. God wants people to repent of their sin and to receive His forgiveness. That is the message of His kingdom. That is why He gave His Son to this world. And who carries that message? We do, the church. We're the only one that shares that message with this entire world. We are the one that bear the testimony of Christ. And Jesus is saying to his church, I want you to love this world like I love this world. I want you to love this world sacrificially because that's how I love this world. I want you to give yourselves up so that they might know the love of God because I gave my life up so that they might know the love of God. That's what we are called to. Because that type of love paves the way for the understanding of the gospel. For God so loved the world. And then Jesus reiterates his love here. The kind of love that we're called to. This very costly love. In verse 35 he says, But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your father also is merciful. Be like your father. Do we see here what he's saying? God loved this world in a very costly love. It cost him his son as he gave Jesus and he was crucified by this world. And Jesus is saying, This is the kind of love that I'm calling you to. But it's not an arbitrary or capricious love. In other words, it's not by chance. It's not like God rolled the dice and said, okay, what kind of love? Okay, I'm going to call them to agape love. That's the type of love that I want you to love the world with. Not at all. He gives us a reason for it. First of all, he says there's great reward. When you love this way, when you love like I do, a very costly love, a love that is very difficult. my love, there is great reward, and I'm going to reward you for all of eternity for that kind of love. Secondly, he says, this is how the family of God works. When you love like this, you demonstrate that you are a child of God. You are one of the sons of God because that's what it means to be in the family of God. And thirdly, since this is how your father loves You are to imitate your father in heaven, Jesus says. When you look at all of the heroes, all of the models, all of the cultural influencers of this world, Jesus says, don't imitate them. Imitate your father in heaven and love like he does. Don't love like this world. Love like your father. Love sacrificially. Love in a way that costs you much. Because that's how much Jesus loves us. That's why he went to the cross for us. That is the definition of agape love. That type of love is what prepares this world to hear and to receive the gospel. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That's the message we're called to. And the only way that it's going to be received is when we love this world like Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for your great love. And Lord, these are very difficult commands to do good to our enemies, to bless them, to pray for them. This is hard, Lord, but we know that we can't do it in and of ourselves. This has got to come from you. And Lord, I pray that we would be a church that that would turn our lives over completely to you so that we can, by the power of your Holy Spirit living inside of us, learn to love one another and then learn to even love our enemies in this world with that type of love. And I pray, Lord, that you would use this church as a blessing to this this city and the surrounding communities and ultimately even to the world, Lord, as we love in a way that is very sacrificial and we prepare people to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, that the Father so loved the world that he sent him, he gave his only begotten son. Lord, that's a wonderful message that we carry. I pray that we live that message, that we speak that message, and that we love people in a way that would make them receptive to that message. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've given us. Thank you for your many, many blessings. I pray that you would bless this body, bless this church, that we would have a wonderful day and a wonderful week in you. Go with us, Lord, in the power of your spirit, wherever you take us this week. And may it be a grace and blessed filled week in you. In Jesus name. amen. Amen.